One of the things they teach you at seminary is that when you come to a biblical text, you should look for the main point as the author intended it. Now, as I come to you today, I know that you've already had some time in the letter of 1 John. So my hope is that you've already gotten to see a little bit of the heart of this extremely caring and pastoral leader, this beloved disciple of John. Now, just like I said, I am going to bring you, and we are going to talk about the main point a little bit tonight, of course, probably a lot tonight, but instead of starting when we come to our 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, with John's answer to us today, I actually want us to start with the people's question. So if you can with me, head back, actually we're going to pull it back forwards to us, to the time of 1 John. So the people that he's speaking to. And when this letter was written, it would have been written for a a bunch of different house churches um, that were a part of John's pastoral community. And so today, we're gonna imagine Anchor Church here as that pastoral community for John. And so it's kind of toasty tonight. I don't know if you've noticed. So you've already got part of the plan here for what it would have felt like to be in Ephesus. I actually have a friend of mine who's in um, a place in Asia Minor right now, and she sent me the weather report yesterday. And as hot as we are here, I promise you it is even hotter there. It is probably about 20 degrees hotter than what we're experiencing. So if you can just imagine even that, now you know a little bit of what it would have felt like to be gathering in Ephesus for this church gathering. And now I want you to look to your left, to your right, Look at the people that surround you, or maybe just to your right, or just to your left, and imagine that you have built relationships with one another. Deep relationships, like really, really deep relationships. You've waded through cultural differences. You've waded through probably some differences in religious backgrounds. You've waded through differences in family upbringing. Some of you have probably even had to leave your families or been rejected by your families to be a part of this thing called Christianity. So you've had all of these differences and yet, as a community, you find your core, you find your connectedness in this one same confession of God. This believing in the resurrected Jesus as Savior and Lord. But now over time, as the weeks and months have passed, there are some in your believing community, new and old, friends and family, who are proclaiming that they have received a new revelation. So they say that they are so deeply connected to God, that there are new teachings, new truths that have been revealed to them. And at first, you're, you're not quite sure what to make of this because, again, these are your friends. These are your family. And the revelations they're giving to you, they're not, they're not downright awful. I mean, some of those things actually sound like stuff you've heard before, things that actually seem pretty logical. They sound like things that you know to be true, and yet it's that eerie feeling lurking in the background that they just seem a little off. 
don't know if any of you have seen the new WandaVision, but I remember the first episodes of watching that and feeling like this kind of seems right. Some of this feels correct, and yet I feel like it's off. I feel like something is wrong. Now these messages and these teachings from your friends, they sound okay, but there's just little pieces of it that don't exactly line up with what you know to be true about God. It actually sounds a lot like things that you've heard, maybe in the marketplace, or maybe when you went to the Amazon bookstore, things you found all over the shelves. These themes, these parts of the revelation that are coming, they sound very, very familiar. But these are your friends. You've seen them worship. You've seen them pray. You've celebrated with them. And you've cried with them. So maybe, maybe you don't know what you think you know. I mean, they seem so much more spiritual sometimes even than you, and they certainly seem confident, and honestly, some of their lives even look a little bit more successful when you look at it. So how do you know that your message is the truth? What if you're wrong? What if we're wrong? How do you know that you have the truth? So if you can open with me to 1 John 4, 1, or follow along as I read, or you're on your phones as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world, but this is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you, you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to them. But we belong to God. And those who know God listen to us. If they don't belong to God, then they don't listen to us. And that is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. The word of the Lord. This, my friends, is John's answer to the questioning and hurting hearts of his congregation. And as we will see, it's still our answer today. Now, the other day, I was watching a show on my laptop, and now they're doing this thing where several shows are requiring you to watch ads as you go to see the show that you really want to see. So you just kind of tough it out and fight your way through it. And so I was watching one of my shows, and this ad came on, and I'd never seen it before. 
and it captivated me instantly. It started throwing out all of these phrases and things that I've heard a million times and never really stopped to think about. It said things like, if, can you really say that the world is your oyster if you're allergic to shellfish? Or, I mean, can love at first sight be real if love is also blind? My personal favorite, why in the world do we call it a pineapple when it has neither pine nor apple? And then it continues to say, question everything. We did. And the punchline for the commercial is because they've questioned everything, they've now produced the best car, the best version that you can possibly have on the market. And I don't know about you, but it was hilarious, but it also got me thinking, it was so relatable. I was like, oh my word, I've never thought about that. I don't know, why do we do that? And I just started questioning and then all the questions and then you're trying to think through everything you've ever said and if it actually makes sense. But this framework of questioning, the reason why that commercial works so well is because that's our society's framework. We question everything. It's very, very relatable to us. Now, when considering this passage, scholar and pastor N.T. Wright shares a really insightful story from 2 Kings. He talks about a Syrian king who has discovered that all of his battle plans, his strategies, everything that he was planning on using to fight the Israelite army has actually been revealed to the Israelite army by the prophet Elisha. So, you know, there goes all the strategy involved. So obviously he's not very happy. So he sends his armies and his chariots to go and kidnap Elisha. So the servant and Elisha get up the next morning and the servant walks outside and sees all of these armies and chariots on the mountains in front of him. And he thinks to himself, oh my, what are we going to do? And he turns to Elisha terrified. And Elisha says, don't be afraid for there are more with us than there are with them. I have to imagine that the servant in this moment was like, oh, Elisha, is it maybe too hot for you out here? I know you're getting up there a little bit. Should I get you some water? Do you need to go back to bed? There's probably hundreds of these armies and soldiers, and it's the two of us. So Elisha prays to the Lord and says, Lord, open up his eyes so that he can see the actual reality here. So the Lord grants his prayer, and the servant looks around him again, and this time, he sees that there are chariots of fire and the Lord's armies surrounding Elisha. There are so many different ideas and claims that swirl around us each and every day. So many interpretations of truth that I wonder if for us sometimes just walking outside, getting up in the morning and stepping outside, it doesn't feel maybe a little bit like we are outnumbered. Like there are viewpoints and armies in front of us overwhelming our hearts. I know that certainly was the case for John's community here. And instead of telling them to just hunker down, shut the door, stay inside and lock it, John gives them an answer. He gives them a test of discernment. But more than that, he gives them a direction for their questions. So let's look at it in verse 1. See, John starts out with a command to his people to not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. It's literally written as, don't believe every spirit. 
Now, for us, we kind of hear that, and there's talks of the Spirit and spirits, and we're kind of like, oh, what does that mean? But for John's community, for his context, the ancient world was filled with the allure of the supernatural. That wouldn't have been strange to them. So kind of don't think Boston, think Salem. And you'll have a little bit of an idea there. That's closer to the world of John's people. Now throughout scripture, we do see God move in supernatural ways. And in the New Testament after Pentecost, we begin to see the Holy Spirit work for the edification of the community of believers in the early church through several miraculous means, many of which are often referred to as spiritual gifts. And they can include prophetic messages. So here in our text, John doesn't specifically say how these false prophets are kind of getting this message out. It's possible that they were trying to build their spiritual credibility by using um, feigned supernatural means, right? Or supernatural means that were coming from something other than the Spirit of Christ. But John doesn't fill that in for us. What we know is that undoubtedly there was a battle of messages being proclaimed and taught. Now in the Old Testament, we see that the Spirit falls on individuals and speaks through them messages revealing truth, revealing truth about the people's situation and about their future, always in the hope of God restoring them to further relationship with Him. But for every prophet speaking truth, there is a handful of others that are declaring false prophecies. We see that everywhere, and we see how seriously God takes the authentic proclamation of his intended meaning and intended words. I don't know if anyone has heard of the Ten Commandments, or maybe you've seen the movie, but commandment number three is referred to as, do not take the Lord's name in vain. You may have heard it as, do not misuse the name of the Lord. Now, sometimes that's been communicated as, don't cuss, right? No fussing, no cussing. And while I think it's a great thing to be aware of how um, our use of words affects the people around us, this commandment actually has its purpose in the idea of false prophets. It's God's way of saying, hey, don't say something I didn't say. No one likes it when our words are twisted and misrepresented, right? I mean, just think about it. Think about for right now, take a moment, the last time someone misused your words. Why didn't you like that? Why did it bother you? Maybe it bothered you because it could involve people getting hurt. Maybe it bothered you because you were concerned about some drama or backlash that could ensue from what was coming. But I think if we take it a little bit deeper and we really think about why that bothers us so much, I think we might realize that it's because it probably wasn't something you would have said. It wasn't you. It's not who you are. How could someone properly understand you if they hear something that's not representative of who you are? Because the falsity of that claim casts a falseness on your own character, on your personhood. It wasn't just about the words coming out of your mouth. It was about people knowing you accurately. And that's the thing about God. God has always desired for us to know him in truth and to know him in full. 
And while that's God's desire, one of the ramifications of sin in the world is that truth is often marred. It's often distorted, like a watercolor that you put too much water in, or um, perhaps a cracked laptop screen that's a bit pixelated. This distortion of truth, it's not new in our time. And it wasn't new in John's time. It actually goes back even way before the Ten Commandments, all the way to the very beginning of creation, when sin first entered the world. In Genesis 3, we see that the very first temptation after creation takes place with a serpent and with mankind. And when the serpent talks to Eve, the very first thing he does is say, did God really say? And then he substitutes what he says God really thinks. It's very, very close to what God said, but there's a couple key words that he's changed just a little bit. You know, he twists God's words and promises that its interpretation will bring life, when in reality, it brings death. And that's what the wrong kind of spirit does. Falseness and deception reveals not God, but the one that scripture refers to as the father of all lies. There's many names throughout scripture. You saw one represented in the serpent. You probably heard it as the adversary, Satan, evil personified, lots of names. But in chapter three, John capitalizes on this as the spirit of the antichrist. Now, the Antichrist potentially might not be Satan himself, right? It might be um, someone that's filled with the spirit of, the, of Satan. But either way, it is this spirit of lies that's actually behind this deceptive teaching of the false prophets. And it's that same spirit of lies that's lurking behind the distorted representations of truth that we encounter today. So it brings us back to the question, okay, so if we know that there's truth out here and we know that there's something that kind of looks like truth, but sometimes it's behind it, got a lot of lies, how do we know? What if we're wrong? How do we know that the truth we found is the truth? And John says, I have the litmus test for you. I have the no swab of tests for you to be able to figure out what authentic messages are coming from Christ. And in verse 2, he says, this is how we know. For if a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the spirit of God. Now, you and I both know that within our English language, where we take breaths, where we take um, emphases with our punctuation can really change meaning, can't it? So um, I'd like for you to look with me at this magazine up here from Rachel Ray. And when we look at this, you're going to see something circled there. It says, Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking her family and her dog. Now, I wasn't there when they published this magazine, but I'm pretty sure they missed two really critical commas. Because I think what they were trying to say is, Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking. She also finds it in her family, and she also finds it in her dog. Not that she likes to cook her family and her dog. So just in the same way that English does that, our Greek language does it as well. And that's what we were originally um, written in for the, Old, or for the New Testament. So when we look at that, 
the Greek construction of this, um, that Jesus Christ came in a real body. That actually can be read as Jesus, comma, the Christ who has come in a real body. See, it's not just stating a historic fact. It's claiming something about Jesus. Who was Jesus? Well, Jesus was the one, the Christ, who came in the flesh. It's an identity statement. And this is where the core of the deceptive proclamations of the false prophets is erring. Because although some things they said probably sounded okay, they denied the humanity of Jesus, saying that there's no way he could have come in the real flesh. He couldn't have inhabited our real broken bodies. And these uh, people of this persuasion were probably the beginnings of what we call Gnosticism. So in their culture around them, within the Gnostic culture, it was very in vogue to reject things of the physical. So our physical bodies, anything that had anything to do with physicality was going to be bad, bad, bad. Everything that was good, good, good was a spirit. And so if we could reach in and be as spirit nature as possible, then we represented the truly enlightened person. So for them, a God who got bruised knees, got dirty from a hard day's work, let alone whose hands held scars and whose body bled, just didn't fit with their worldview. So in order to reckon with this, people of that persuasion said that Jesus only appeared as a human, but that he was always only spirit the whole time, kind of like an actor who puts a mask on, changing their appearance but not actually changing their being. Here's the problem with that. If Christ only appeared to take on flesh, then he only appeared to die. And if he only appeared to die in the flesh, then how could he have really raised and been risen in the flesh? And if Christ didn't die in the flesh and rise redeemed in the flesh, then what hope is there for us and our broken bodies? If he wasn't broken for us, then he didn't redeem our flesh either. And this is the heart of this false gospel, of the Gnostic gospel. It's the idea that some way, somehow, we didn't even need to address the brokenness in our own bodies because we can reach in to our spirit, ourselves, and we can somehow present ourselves as enlightened, as redeemed. Now, the power of the true gospel is that Christ didn't shed his human form after he rose from the dead. He kept it. He redeemed it and glorified it. And the power of our gospel is that Jesus, the God, the perfect king, took on a broken body like ours. Dirt, scrape, scars, and all. So that we could exist in ours with a hope. That hope began at the cross. It's our hope for redemption that continues in the regeneration of our hearts and will continue until the Lord brings all things to completion. So while a false message coming from the spirit of deception mars the revealed identity of Jesus, John says that the spirit of truth always reflects a Christ who came in the real body. So how do we know? How do we know that we know the truth? Well, we know because any messages, teachings, or expressions of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives will bring to light truth about Christ as ultimately revealed 
in the word of God, revealed as Jesus who became flesh and lived among us. Now, in case there is any doubt still in your heart that you have the capacity to recognize if your belief is the truth, John says in verse 4, but you belong to God, my dear children, for you have already won a victory over them. And victory to John is believing the truth about Jesus and rejecting false lies and deceptive messages that are contrary to who Jesus is. And while it may feel like you are vastly outnumbered in your vantage point, just like God surrounded Elisha with many more than were coming to fight him, he has given you, he has given me something, someone, so much greater. In John verse 4, he makes this because statement. So we can't miss this because If it's just us reaching down within ourselves again to find this discernment of the truth and this discernment between the two, then again, that sounds a whole lot like Gnosticism, right? Like what we just talked about. So we're saying the same thing, which isn't great. But John says, no, no, no. It's not because your powers of discernment are just so awesome or because you have the superior intellect and makes you some kind of human lie detector. It has nothing to do with that. It is solely because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. John says you belong to God and you have already won a victory because of the spirit within you. So we don't have to allow the chariots and horses of lies to overtake us. For we have the greater army inside of our very souls. Now, one quick aside in the pastoral heart of mine, also wanting to represent the pastoral heart of John well. Sometimes when we hear terms that sound a little militaristic, like overcome, victory, it can begin to create this dichotomy of what we can feel like an us versus them kind of ethic. And as you've seen John communicate throughout his gospel and throughout this letter, and especially as you're going to see next week in the weeks to come, John is about anything but an us versus them mentality. John believes firmly that truth and love go hand in hand, that one without the other is really nothing at all. So again, it's not us overcoming in and of our own right or overcoming people, right? It is the Spirit of God which allows us to overcome with truth over lies. So while we may not have the eyewitness John with us tonight, our God made flesh through Jesus Christ as revealed in scripture is our vantage point by which we discern truth through the Holy Spirit. So take heart for the Christ who came in flesh is our foundational reality. He is the most real thing and true thing that we could ever count on. And it is by the Holy Spirit's illumination of God's identity through this scripture that we can confidently walk in the spirit of truth and invite others to walk with us. So as the band comes up, let's pray.